0: Good afternoon. Um, welcome to the Migration Policy Institute discussion on Beyond the Border, U.S.-Mexico Migration Accord, um, the Beyond the Border, um, how the U.S.-Mexico Migration Accord has ushered in sweeping change in Mexico in its first year. We're very pleased to have all of you with us today. Um, we have a, a report that we have released today written by my colleague Ariel Luis Soto, who you'll hear from in a minute, um, who which looks at changes in Mexico that have happened as a result of the the accord that happened just about a year ago between Mexico and the United States, between the two governments. Um, we also have a phenomenal panel that will follow his remarks. Um, that includes Angela Cocherga, who's now the news director at KTP uh, TV in El Paso, um, and uh, which is the public TV and radio station in El Paso, longtime border reporter for Bello News, as well as Mexico City bureau chief and, and former professor at, at ASU at the Cronkite School. Uh, Jerónimo Gutiérrez, the former Mexican ambassador to the United States, as well as former head of the NAD Bank, former Mexican undersecretary for North America, for Latin America, and and for governance. Um, And Roberta Jacobson, Ambassador Jacobson, former U.S. ambassador to Mexico, um, uh, also former assistant secretary for Western Hemisphere, someone who's held all sorts of distinguished diplomatic uh, positions in the United States, um, and now at Albright Stonebridge Group. And so great to have all of you here. About a year ago, the U.S. and Mexico reached an agreement on managing migration. This was done under difficult circumstances. Um, This has set off a series of changes in Mexican immigration policy over the past year, um, as well as concerns around humanitarian issues at the border. Um, We have seen subsequent U.S. policies around the COVID epidemic and around asylum that have happened unilaterally since that period, but some of which have had a response from the Mexican government as well. We've seen changes internally in Mexico to its immigration and asylum systems, um, and we've seen changes in the modalities of cooperation between the two countries. And so we're gonna talk, Ariel will really talk about what is, what has happened over the past year um, based on his report, and and then we'll have a conversation with the, all of the panelists about about both what this means and and what future paths might be in store for us. Um, you are, it's great to have you with us. If you would like to um, tweet about this, you can feel free to do so. If you want to send us, if you want to participate in the discussion, you can actually, um, we will have a time for Q and A. You can go to the, um, text box, which is on your right, right upper side, I believe for most of us. Um, and you can type a question in there. We'll answer it during the Q and A period. Um, if you have technical difficulties or a question, you can email us at events at migrationpolicy.org or tweet at us. Um, at Migration Policy. Um, and thank you for being with us. We look forward to a, a, uh, a very lively um, and informative conversation. And let me turn first to Ariel Ruiz, Associate Policy Analyst at Migration Policy Institute, someone I've had the pleasure of working with on a number of different projects, um, prolific author, researcher, um, both on U.S. policy and U.S., Mexico, Central American migration policies. Ariel, tell us about what's happened over the past year.
1: Thank you, Andrew. And thank you to all of, the, all of you joining us remotely, uh, especially in the very difficult circumstances that we all live in. Um, following the months of, I'll be try to be as brief as possible so we can have as much conversation. Following the months of the high-end uh, Central American immigration to Mexico and to the United States border, and a threat by the United States President Donald Trump to impose a tariff of up to 25% uh, on Mexican imports, absent additional Mexican cooperation and migration the US and the Mexican government signed a migration cooperation agreement on June 7, 2019. And this agreement uh, marked the beginning of a new era in the development of Mexican migration, as Andrew suggested, looking specifically at immigration enforcement and humanitarian protection systems. And this policy that we'll go over today and the website available available online, examines how the agreement that subsequent measures in the United States, as well as the COVID-19 pandemic, have reshaped Mexico's response to migration in the years since this agreement was signed. So, after three, years, three days of negotiations, the US, the US and Mexico came up with a joint declaration that contained five key components. First, Mexico agreed to strengthen migration controls at the Mexican Guatemalan border as well as in the interior by deploying its recently created National Guard to buttress existing efforts of the National Institute of Migration, INAMI in Spanish. Second, Mexico agreed to accept more Mexican, more non-Mexican asylum seekers and migrants returned by the United States as part of the expansion of the Migration Protection Protocols, also known as Remain in Mexico, across the U.S.-Mexico border, making a commitment specifically to give them access to employment, healthcare, and educational opportunities while they wait for their asylum cases in the United States to be resolved. In turn, the United States committed to expediting the processing of asylum claims from these migrants in the United States, as well as Working with Mexico to continue to cooperate on reducing and dismantling human smuggling networks as well as their financial systems. Finally, both governments committed to addressing root causes of migration through development investment in Southern Mexico and Central America by coordinating efforts with regional and international partners, specifically and most importantly, perhaps through Mexico's Comprehensive Development Plan, Plan de Desarrollo Integral in Spanish. What you see in this figure is the Mexican enforcement since 2014 to 2020, as far as May. And what you should see is that the signing of the cooperation Mexican agreement marked a substantial shift in Mexico's migration enforcement, really restructuring enforcement operations and priorities and institutional leadership uh, in the early months of the López Obrador administration. The Mexican migration, the Mexican Mexican apprehensions of migrants were at levels similar to those in previous years at the beginning of the year, as you can see before the dotted lines, um, but began to increase quickly in April. And by June, Mexican authorities when the agreement came to effect, Mexican authorities had made 31,000 apprehensions of migrants and 22,000 returns, which came to be the highest month of enforcement in, of June on, any, on record since at least in 2001, which is the previous year we've seen. Figures through 2007 to September 2019, just weeks after the, agreement, the agreement's 90-day review period, demonstrated a dramatic increase in enforcement. Mexican migration, apprehensions, uh, Mexican migration uh, authorities apprehended 81,000 migrants through, from June through September, which is a 76% increase over the 46,000 they apprehended the same period on, in 2018. Migrant returns also rose by 69% from 37,000 to 62,000 between the two periods. Nonetheless, while migrant enforcement activities increased in the summer 2019, they did not surpass the levels of 2015 when the Mexican authorities implemented the southern border program, Programa Frontera Sur. In, and in all of 2019, Mexico made 100, 1, 187,000 apprehensions of migrants and 181,000 returns. And you can see again here to the dotted lines the period that we discussed. Then Mexico's uh, MPP uh, program or the US, US uh, MPP program and Mexico's increasing its um, uh, arriving number of migrants really began to increase in the spring. But if you see as you as in the figure, um, by about from June to September, just weeks after the 90 day agreement, Mexico received approximately 39,000 migrants from the, United States, from the United States, more than four times the number it received in the first five months. And just quickly for those, of you new to MPP it's a program that allows migrants to be returned to Mexico while they wait for their immigration hearings in the United States so what you can see here is that at the same time like Mexican migration authorities increased their capacity as well to be sent to to receive additional migrants being sent back from about 100 people daily to about 500 in some locations by November MPP indeed was operational in nearly all sections of the US Mexico border However, um, U.S. logistical and administrative issues in processing MPP and Mexico's limited shelter capacity have raised significant concerns about the dangerous conditions these migrants are turning space while waiting in Mexico. So, migrants have found discrepancies in their notices to appear in U.S. courts. Others have not been properly notified by uh, and had administrative errors in those notices. Um, and the, although the Mexican agreement established two shelters, one in Ciudad Juarez and another in Tijuana, Most of the responsibility to provide a daily service to these migrants continues to rely on civil society shelters and organizations that have a strained capacity. In total, estimates suggest that these civil society organizations are still continuing to receive more migrants and they are running out of funds, as was mentioned specifically with COVID and women. In border cities that do not have the shelter capacity, a lot of, for example, Matamoros, Tamalipas, migrants have resorted to using and making and having to living in precarious makeshift camps that are prone to flooding and other conditions. At the same time, multiple human organizations have documented this migrants' exposure to, de- to dangerous conditions. For example, one study found that more than 20% of, Mexi- of migrants returned to Mexico were threatened by violence, while another tracked more than 800 public reports of murder, torture, rape, kidnapping, and other violent attacks of- against sound seekers and other migrants returned to Mexico. For the other um, elements of the agreement, it's unclear and have received uh, mixed results. It is unclear, for example, whether the U.S. processing of asylum cases has improved significantly over the period that uh, the agreement covered. And it is uh, what we have received or seen gradual improvement in dismantling and smuggling networks, especially those of transport and buses that are smuggling migrants from southern Mexico to northern Mexico. We still don't know how widespread or how they will continue specifically in the current conditions. Um, also, the U.S. and Mexico have had different development assistance priorities in how they invest in Mexico and southern Mexico and Central America, including in the United States process and reductions in U.S. funding that have changed just recently. And in Mexico, with uh, still unclear results of two of its main programs in terms of investment that are really made to produce more uh, opportunities of employment for migrants that are that would be coming to the United States. The other part of this report looks at uh, protection systems. And in the year of implementation of the agreement, the US-Mexican Humanitarian Protection System achieved some undeniable advances, but also faced significant uh, challenges in needs of protection. First, the demand of humanitarian protection in Mexico had already been increasing since 2016 um, when the Mexican Refugee Commission, known as COMAR, received 9,000 asylum requests, more than the total uh, received during the previous two years, as you can see in the graph, And then asylum applications doubled every year since 2017, reaching approximately 71,000 in 2019. In the first three months, it's notable to suggest that the first three months of 2020, COMAD received 17,000 applications, which represented a 34 percent increase over the same period in 2019 and already surpassed the numbers of applications in 2017. At the same time, uh, and facing this uh, additional uh, need of protection, the Mexican Congress assigned it, increases, it increased Comar's budget, assigning 47 million pesos, which is about $2.4 million to Comar, which is an increase of 127% compared to 2019. Comar also invested in increasing offices. It added another center in Tapachula, Chiapas, the southernmost uh, point of, of Mexico. And it also opened offices in the northern cities of Monterrey, Nuevo León, and Tijuana, Baja California to try to increase and address um, significant gaps there. To further increase its capacity, of course, it also tried to increase and is trying to increase um, the staffing of its product of its uh, of its center, so they can be more people able to so to process asylum uh, applications. And while these were good intentions, it's still unclear whether the current conditions with COVID-19 are going to delay in some way uh, and make it more difficult for Comar to meet the demands uh, of protection as it increases in the region. So. Perhaps one of the most important things that we discover in this report is that both the U.S. and Mexico are still adapting to trying to changes in the Mexican uh, or in the, on the in the virus pandemic, and specifically Mexico has will continue to work with, with the United States. One evidence of this is the is that when the United States uh, implemented a CDC rule known as Title 42, Mexico basically allows or impedes me- uh, migrants to enter the United States and returns to Mexico. Mexico accepted. Uh, to receive an additional number of migrants. And by the end of April 2020, US Border Patrol had already expelled more than 20,000 migrants, um, and the majority of them to Mexico. And in May, the Trump administration extended this policy indefinitely. At the same time, um, protests of, and critiques of the health precautions in detention centers and other places that are helping and servicing migrants grew dramatically in the spring of this year. And as, this, uh, as these actions increased, One of them also tried to, the Mexican government tried to release some pressures by working with migrant organizations and releasing most of its migrants under detention centers that it had. The latest figures we have is that about 200 migrants continue to be detained in these conditions and that they're doing better to try to continue these agreements. Perhaps one last point on this to try to uh, give a summary of this is that at the same time the COVID uh, pandemic affected the humanitarian conditions, it also made more difficult for Mexico to uh, apprehend and report or return migrants in the regions because of the different restrictions on mobility and other policies and limited movements specifically what Guatemala and as you may have heard this led to some uh, points where migrants were left uh, without protection on the southern border so the takeaways points of release that i wanted to try to stress for this conversation is that increased enforcement and demand for in mexico have exposed significant weaknesses and assistance to manage migration and protect vulnerable populations over the last year after the, uh, the agreement at the same time that without additional capacity and infrastructure returning large numbers of migrants may exacerbate some of the serious challenges in Mexican border communities and really Mexicans as well living in these communities face. and finally that thinking more forward about this Mexican uh, uh, modernization efforts will ultimately depend on having a balance of migration enforcement and human, human protection capacities in the face of future pressures from the United States. This is something that we can that we, that we can expect to continue to see and that we should that we at MPI are going to continue to follow very closely to try to determine what we expect in the will be. With that, I will pass it back to Andrew.
0: Thank you, Ariel. That's great. Um, and and we will turn now to our panel to discuss <laughs> this, to talk about what this looks like on the ground in the diplomatic relationship. And we'll go first to Angela Cocherga. Um, who is news director at uh, KTEP, the public radio station in El Paso, as well as directing Border Design, which I recommend to all of you, by the way, at, at UTEP uh, Magazine, and as well as many other things, and a former winner of the Maria Moores Cabot uh, Prize as well. So, Angela, what does this look like uh, at the, as you report from this on the border?
2: Well, first of all, thank you, Andrew, and the Migration Policy Institute, and of course, Ariel, that very insightful report. Um, a year of uh, Later, I I just can't believe much has happened. Um, I'm also very honored to be included in this conversation with Ambassador Roberta Jacobson, and Ambassador Eroni Gutierrez. I honor both of you and and look forward to hearing your comments. I've been invited to give you kind of the view from the ground, from the border. Um, I'm here in El Paso, Juarez, the Paso del Norte region. Greetings from the border, saludos desde la frontera. Norte or Sur, depending on where you're where you're looking at it. Um, I've been reporting on, on these issues for many, many years, and uh, it, it's been astounding, and I'm sure for you, you know, we used to look at these trends year to year or even over decades. Uh, now we're looking at things uh, month to month, week to week, week today day sometimes. Uh, nowhere have we seen the impact of these policies more directly than Uh, right here on the border uh, on both sides. And uh, just to give you sense, it was exactly a year ago I was reporting uh, in Ciudad Juarez as that National Guard uh, force was deployed by President López Obrador to both of Mexico's borders. Here we saw immediately uh, a dramatic impact. Um, I saw something I never imagined I'd witnessed. I saw migrants, Central American migrants, parents and children trying to sneak out of Mexico, trying to evade the National Guard. Uh, and, and run to the border patrol on the other side of, of Rio Grande up to the fence so they could turn themselves in and ask for asylum. So really it's kind of a reversal of roles. Um, the Trump administration has wanted a wall and, and do have a, a barrier along the stretches of the border. Um, but what we really saw that was effective was Mexico taking action uh, in an enforcement role and that human wall of, of the National Guard uh, along this stretch of border uh, really deterring people Central Americans from trying to reach the U.S. at least temporarily. Some people got pushed to more remote stretches of border, um, more risky routes, and of course that also benefited uh, organized crime that moves people up and down down the border. Um, So, so that was uh, astounding. Um, This this is so complex, and there were so many impacts. I thought I'd figure out a way to kind of tell you through through one example of of the evolution of of the the migration uh, uh, policy the impact here on the border. Um, many of you might be familiar with Annunciation House. It's a nonprofit um, organization based in El Paso, been here for decades, run by Ruben Garcia, and uh, he calls hospitality centers. Uh, they're temporary shelters for migrants um, who, who come through here on the way, uh, usually uh, while they're waiting for their immigration to stop here on the way to the cities where they have relatives. Um, Annunciation has been around for a long, long time, dates back to the 80s when the original refugees that were served were were coming from Central America from countries where there was civil war. Most recently, uh, the influx was Central American parents and children looking for asylum. And just in in the last year uh, and a little bit more, Ruben has had to, in Annunciation House, adapt in in remarkable ways very quickly. First from individual uh, migrants, uh, adults, to, to handle family units, families, parents, and children. Then the numbers became so, so large, we even had to reach out to other faith-based organizations, um, Annunciation House uh, partnered with, uh, in the whole region to to receive these families temporarily. Uh, the numbers became so large that uh, uh, Annunciation House uh, opened a temporarily, temporary, what they call a respite center, hospital hospitality center in a um, warehouse that was converted to to receive uh, families uh, again temporarily coming through here on the way to u s cities where they would wait out their immigration hearings with that the remaining mexico or return to mexico and and the national guard the no, the flow uh, almost, uh, from one day to the next uh, dropped dramatically and, and the number of people coming into the u s and at least uh, needing uh, some sort of shelter went down uh, to very low then Ruben uh, and, and Annunciation House uh, reached out to Mexican shelters and Mexican authorities to see how they could partner and help people who are now stuck in Mexico. Um, and so that was the really adapting there. And Mexican shelters, nonprofits have really done a, a remarkable job with limited resources, as Ariel pointed out. Local communities trying to do the best they can. Um, a lot of them faith-based, like uh, Casa del Migrante. And, of course, we do have a, a government shelter, a government finance shelter in Cuadus in that has been um, essential for to deal with the sheer numbers of people coming through. Um, the pandemic has created new pressures. Um, we see uh, now there's a hotel set up, uh, what they call it. It's the Hotel Flamingo, but you don't go there for a vacation. <laughs> you're there if you're a migrant arriving and need to be quarantined, uh, migrant families for two weeks. Sure that you know you're able to go on to one of the other shelters that you're not going to uh, be, be um, carrying the virus. There have been some minor outbreaks in in shelters here, and real concern on the part of health authorities into about what is that there could be an as as the health authority here put it uh, an explosive um, outbreak if if this spreads in some of these overcrowded shelters. Um, I would I would say Ruben' the final evolution has been um, he to adapt Annunciation House, to uh, have protocols for migrants who are released from ICE detention, who need, uh, you know, after after they've been able to convince, there have been big, as many of you know, with uh, trying to get medically vulnerable migrants released from uh, ICE detention centers. A few have released and um, in order to ensure that, you know, that, that they're safe and that they're not passing whatever they may have been exposed in terms of the virus to other people around the country, there are, uh, isolation areas in Annunciation House, medical personnel, and so the migrants are quarantined for two weeks, um, and and deemed safe enough to to travel to other parts of the U.S. Uh, to await their immigration hearings. But but really, um, at this point, uh, the, the humanitarian and pandemic uh, crisis has has converged to create some new pressures, a pressure cooker situation, I'd, I'd say, for especially Mexico, where the bulk of, of migrants are are stuck. And uh, dealing with the economic downturn, the health situation, and some of the uh, organized crime targeting of migrants that Ariel uh, documented in his report that we all have uh, have heard about. And and I've interviewed people who have been in those kidnapping ransom situations where they're held until their family member in the US can pay that ransom. Um, I think that our big questions going forward. Uh researchers and reporters are to track uh the migration, uh what has happened to many of the migrants. Some have gone home. They've told me we don't have a support system in Juarez. We can't we're parents children, we can't be working, we have nowhere for our children. We're uh, it's a very risky situation. Um safety wise, so some have gone home. Others said we can't go home. They say, especially the Cubans, and they've really been resilient and their own communities and businesses and there's a lot of great Cuban restaurants in Juarez now for those of you who visit. So we're seeing that and they're they're staying and making a home and probably not uh, they seem as concerned about reaching the us right now and then finally we have to figure out what has happened that disappeared. So that will be our big challenge uh, in the near future. I look forward to your questions.
0: Thank you Angela that was great. Um, we'll turn now to Ambassador Fernando Gutierrez. Um, he represented Mexico as, as ambassador in Washington for, for a number of years, as well as president of the NAD Bank, um, director general of the NAD Bank, and a number of senior positions in the Mexican government before coming to the United States. Geronimo, great to have you with us. What has this looked like in the past year?
3: Thank you very much, Andrew. Uh,
0: I, I also want to congratulate uh, Ariel for a wonderful
3: work and a very good paper. And it's a pleasure to be with Angela and Ambassador Jacobson as always. Uh, I, I really look, uh, have looked forward to, to this occasion. So let me, let me first start with the obvious. but this, I think that we must, we must recognize that U.S. and Mexico migration policy will never be the same. But nevertheless, we do have, I think, both countries have a vested interest in trying to work and cooperate as much as possible. And that is much more easier said than done, and I think we have to recognize that. And I think we have to recognize that the situation we're in, and that started basically, you know, 2000, we we had a peak in 2014, uh, in terms of the regional migration phenomenon, and then again, 2017, 18, 19. And it's, uh, you know, it it has been very difficult. It's not a, a, I don't think it's a a place where we want to remain too long. I think it's uh, a a relatively patched up solution to a very complex phenomenon. But in spite of those difficulties, I think we need to try to work together. And I'm not being diplomatic, I'm no longer serving, but I just think that it really makes sense to, you know, to be careful and to try to address it at work. Uh, And again, it'll never be easy. The second thing I want to emphasize is what this situation has shown is that both the Mexican and the U.S. asylum system are have been surpassed by reality and therefore they need to be fixed. And I don't pretend to know how to best fix the U.S. system asylum system uh, and probably neither the Mexican, but I do think that there needs to be a thoughtful discussion on, on, on the asylum systems of both countries and then especially working in it on the regional context. And I think that's one of the, of the tasks that we have uh, for the future. I also want to emphasize that even though both countries are working together to address the root causes of uh, migration, especially from Central America and Mexico, and that's certainly good, uh, and uh, it's not a new idea. The López Obrador administration, I think you know, took the right decision in uh, stressing this point and brought a renewed interest in working with the United States and the Central Americans, and I think that's very positive. I think there's a very large gap in terms of what can you know has been accomplished so far and uh, the traction of those initiatives versus the sort of the level of the challenge. And I do hope that uh, working with the Central Americans and you know other but perhaps also regionally that the the US and the Mexican governments continue to work. there, And again, it's much more easier said than done. It's not a new paradigm, by the way. I I don't think that, and I think we need to think early about why why has it been so difficult to address uh, this, you know, these root causes, especially on the Central American Northern Triangle countries, because it's not new. And several, I think, smart and, and careful people and institutions have been trying to work at that for a long period of time. And the US has had previous initiatives in previous administrations and Mexico likewise. And we haven't really been able, you know, being self-critical to you know, do, do enough. And therefore I think that a, a, it's warranted to think why, what can truly be accomplished. And uh what is the best way to go and and do that? Um, I think that looking at well the other thing is that we need to find a way to differentiate or or better ways to differentiate uh what is economic migration from actually asylum uh you know legitimate asylum seeking and I think part of the problem in the recent years has been precisely that. Uh, and I'm sure it's not, you know, it, it's difficult, uh, but there are, those are two distinct phenomena. And I think that unless that is recognized and addressed separately with solutions on both sides, we will continue to have this very difficult dynamic. Um, I I also think that um, Mexico, you know, two more things on Mexico is we we need to have, Mexico must have a very, honest and thoughtful discussion about enforcement. And what exactly does it mean? I think, Ariel, one of your main takeaways is, you know, you cannot have these two views. One that sees migration as an absolute universal right, as many people in Mexico do, and perhaps elsewhere also in the United States, and then as, you know, uh, you know the sovereign right of any country to determine who who comes in, how they do it, for how long and, and just those polls, we, we need to narrow that gap. And uh, I, I think that this this has been a game changer and certainly the, the, the AMLO administration has been, you know, very bold and, you know, and, and criticized for it, but to, for using actually the National Guard to deter immigration. I, I think that's a situation where we don't want to remain certainly, but I do feel that in my country, there's a need to discuss what are the parameters by which you actually do sensible humanitarian enforcement, uh, you know, control, operational control of borders, while at the same time being able to be absolutely, you know, respectful of human rights and um, sensitive to the fact that there is a great humanitarian situation going on. And I, I, I don't pretend to, to, to say that's easy, Having served in previous administrations in these topics related to these are very much involved. I think we, to be honest, if if not fail, we, we certainly came very short of finding solutions to those problems. And I think that that needs to be there. Mexico, you know, one of the things that worries me is that we're always in the bilateral relation. And I can talk about Mexico itself. We're always trying to, you know, we're always lagging behind in terms of the solution. We need to, I think, whatever we do needs to be sustainable. There's a risk that if we, if we don't think about this in a sustainable way, we can, have, again, find ourselves, um, you know, uh, in, in a similar situation relatively, uh, you know, in a relatively short period of time. And I think that the sustainability of a new migration policy depends on two or three factors. Number one, money, money and money. If Mexico is so proud about being a country and I think we are of destiny of, you know, for migrants of transit and also of origin, we need to put our, you know, mouth where the um, our money where the mouth is and try to really devote you know, significant resources to addressing this, and we have not done enough. And I think that's 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 a problem. The other one is we need a. I think that it will be positive to have a instit- international organization sort of accompany this process of building a stronger institutional framework and sort of a medium to long term immigration policy. Um, I think that one specific recommendation is to have Mexico do a special migration program in terms of its own planning law which has been done in the past and have an international organization whether it's or several whether it's the organization of international migrations the idb or some other forms be participant so it becomes there's a follow-up and there's accountability and there's sustainability in whatever we do and i i think that's um, very relevant. The final point I want to make, too, is one is we should look, you know, we should take a closer look also about, you know, the, what people have uh, in Mexico, what their views are on migration, because we tend to be very vocal in favor of migrants, and that's, you know, something that, you know, we can feel proud of. But at the same time, if you look at some of the recent polls, You know, Mexico. The average Mexican is not so thrilled anymore about having people go through Mexico. And I don't pretend to be judgmental about that. I just think that we are we're we're sometimes sort of we're not realistic about what how to deal with our own challenges on migration. Again, albeit that that is a a very difficult um, challenge. So, um, and certainly COVID-19 is going to change everything in the sense that we don't know exactly, I mean, there are a lot of risks, and that's why as Ariel and Angela were talking, people have been released because it it, it just, it's extremely dangerous to have them uh, in any form of detention and uh, whether there will be a true inflection point, a result of what has happened. And COVID-19, enough to dent the regional migration phenomenon in the coming years, I don't know. But I think that's a question we also need to address because we don't want to be building some policy based upon, you know, expost and certainly, you know, a year or two years from now, think that, you know, have things change and, 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 and not be all that up to date with respect to that policy. I know this is, uh, you know, I'll stop there. Uh, thanking again uh, for the opportunity and congratulating Ariel, the Migration Policy Institute on, on, uh, on this wonderful work. Thank you.
0: Thank you, Um uh We now turn to Roberta Jacobson, Ambassador Roberta Jacobson, who was a a fountain of wisdom and a <laughs> steady hand in the U.S.-Mexico relationship for I think about 20 years, Roberta, um, and and a person that that really had deep trust among people on on both sides of the border. Um, Roberta, you uh, former ambassador to Mexico, of course, but but also former assistant secretary for Western Hemisphere affairs and many other roles. Um, in the U.S. government, Roberta, give us your thoughts on this.
4: Thank you so much, Andrew, and thank you everybody who's gone before. Um, I'm going to try and be really brief because the smartest people have already talked, and the report is is excellent. Ariel, thank you so much for that. Two or three brief comments on Ariel's report from the U.S. policy side, and then some some uh, additional thoughts. First, um, let me say that I think Ariel has pointed out absolutely correctly that. Um, what the commitments were by both governments uh, when they went into this. Um, Some of those have been a lot more uh, uh, visible than others, but it seems to me that as he outlines what some of the US commitments were, in particular um, expedition of asylum, um, expediting the asylum process on the US side, which I, I can only say, does not appear to be happening. Uh, Angela may know that better, but it certainly appears to me that the US has neither the resources devoted to it, nor frankly the will um, devoted to expediting asylum processes to actually live up to that commitment. And second of all, it seems to me that the whole notion of dismantling the human smuggling rings, which I think is critically important to this, It's great that action is being taken perhaps against some who are transporting those migrants, but to me that is a a Marginal part of this problem. It is not the fundamental criminal networks It is a it is a part of it and you have to take a holistic approach, but it's far from um, Getting to the the criminal element uh, that's at the heart of the of the exploitation of migrants. Um, Let me also say that on the asylum processing, one of the things that I think is critical to remember from the U.S. side is that the United States closed off almost every other avenue for migration from Central America and indeed from Mexico to the United States, which in some respects not not completely forced people to seek asylum, right? There aren't temporary worker programs other than agricultural and low-skilled H-2A, and those have struggled, frankly, to keep up with both demand and processing. Um, And so people have sort of resorted to uh, requesting asylum, both for legitimate reasons, but also because they don't know of any other way to get to the United States and the closing down of family reunification is obviously a a critical part of that. Um, But I also think that it's important that we um, look at the implications of some of these policies on both the US and on Mexico. If you're going to devote um, 10,000, 20,000 of your brand new Guardia Nacional to uh, migration policy, it strikes me that you better have your security situation under firm control. And that's exactly the opposite of what we're seeing in Mexico. Why are these security forces devoting their attention to migration when? the homicide rate and other indicators of crime in Mexico have exploded. Um, Again, that underscores, I think, will this policy be sustainable over the long term if and when, because I suspect they will, numbers rise again. Do we go back to um, threats of tariffs or trade wars, uh, which I think really is the only reason uh, that Mexico agreed to the remain in Mexico policy initially. A couple of other thoughts outside the uh the paper um on the US side. First, I think as we approach uh the 2020 presidential election in the United States, it is an excruciatingly difficult balancing act for any presidential candidate. Um, perhaps any presidential candidate who isn't uh President Trump, but but I'll leave that aside. And that is how do you signal a more humane, a more balanced policy without signaling that people should be prepared to come immediately after Inauguration Day. And that is problematic, I think, for Democratic candidates in general. Um, And so any transition away from what I see as highly draconian policies on the US side, I think will probably have to be done slowly to unwind them. Because otherwise, there is a tendency to see this rush to the border, which unfortunately, again, will kick up backlash. But the second thing I think is important to connect the COVID-19 pandemic and migration policy, because it is being used as an excuse to implement certain even more extreme migration crackdowns. Um, on the basis of public health. That's certainly what we've seen, Ariel, points out the extension of Title 42, the CDC rule um, ad infinitum, or indefinitely at this point. um, It is being implemented for public health reasons, which probably um, could have been defined more narrowly, was to be in place, I think, till June 22nd. Now that's indefinite. And that is because it is something that the administration would have liked to do anyway. Finally, I will say this: insta- the unsustainability on the Mexican side for reasons of security, uh, as well as I think political reasons um, mean that at some point these kinds of U.S. policies will come a cropper, I think, with Mexico. And the extent of that cooperative relationship will be tested very severely. Um, and I, I guess I can only hope that they are tested in a period when the countries are growing economically again, and when the COVID-19 uh, virus has receded a little bit so that more sort of rational policymaking can take over. I'll stop there. Thank you, Andrew, very much.
0: Thank you, Roberta, that was great. Let me, um, uh, let's turn now down to questions. We've already gotten a number of questions, so if, feel free if you wanna jump into the Q&A, you can type into the chat area in the Q&A area on the right upper side of your screen. Let me read the questions we've had for now and we, can, we will go to the panelists to get their responses. One is, what are we seeing in terms of COVID-19 infection rates in border communities given the expulsions to the border communities from the United States? Um, is there US-Mexico cooperation on dealing with COVID-19 in the border region? Uh, how is the comprehensive development plan being implemented by both the Mexico and U.S. governments? This is the plan that was developed at the instigation of the Mexican government early in Lopez Obrador's administration. Um, and, how, and there's another question on how Mexico is dealing with the expulsions in general. What measures are in place to take people in who are expelled, um, which is different from MPP, right? There are two channels. There are really three channels of people, right? There are people waiting in MPP. There are people being expelled back to Mexico who are not Mexican and or from different regions of Mexico or from Central America. And then obviously you have people who are who are meteric who are also waiting for, for an asylum hearing, probably to be turned away or put in MPP. Um, so at least three streams of people waiting in border communities right now. Um, let's start with those. Uh, oh, has Mexico received, here's a question. Has Mexico received um, any monies related to the MPP agreement? Is there money that changed hands? And uh, to what extent has the compatibility of nationalist policies on either side of the border allowed for this agreement? How would Mexico react to change in US migration policy? And uh, thanks to Ambassador Jacobson from Teresa Brown for raising the issue of what a new administration could do to amend current policies. Um, let's go back to the panelists and uh, let's go in the order we had. Ariel, let's start with you, and we'll go through the panelists in order.
1: Sure. I think I'm. I, I think I can. There's some questions that I, I don't know immediately the answers to. I think there's not a lot of information on this, but I can shed a, a couple of points. The first one that I think should be should be made more clear is what happens under the title for to expulsions to Mexico. And so, when somebody is expelled from the United States to Mexico, what happens? At least as far as we know. Is that that migrant is given an opportunity in Mexico to either stay there if they have had a previous legal status in Mexico, for example, if they had previously received asylum there, um, or they're uh, allowed or they have the opportunity to request asylum in Mexico like everybody else does, uh, which would take in this period of COVID-19, with everything which is slowing down, would take a number of months, um, and then finally they're also offered an opportunity to be returned voluntarily to their countries of origin. It is at least according to some of the media reports that we've seen, most of the people who are being expelled are actually being, choosing to be returned voluntarily to the countries of origin. Um, again, it's not a clear process and we still would, uh, want to know more about how or who is being expelled in the United States, who is being chose to be, chosen to be, um, to be expelled by the US. But the clear factor here is that Mexican immigration authorities are trying to understand and have these three options for migrants at the same time as some of these migrants who may be choosing to stay in Mexico for uh, the short or longer period of time will be continuing to face, uh, you know, limited resources on the northern, Mexico northern border and in the interior. In Mexico City, I think there has been some movements and some organizations and, and city efforts to address more migrants there have been successful. But the reality of this too is that not all migrants are going to Mexico City. And in fact, some of them may be less, may have less access to, to services and resources if they're going to their states that are not as um as better as equipped to do that and then just briefly on the on the the comprehensive development plan it is something that the mexican government has um saw as as its main one of the main components to 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 solve the issue of migration or to at least try to reduce it Um, but so far there are only two programs that the mexican government has engaged with central america specifically on this one of them and they fall under this plan One of them is a Sembrando Vidas, which is a plan to try to increase employment in agricultural settings in Mexico or in the countries of origin that actually started with a similar program in Mexico. And the second program that is meant to help and increase employment among youth who would otherwise be uh, perhaps uh, inclined to migrate to the United States. Those are two programs. They they have seen uh, significant, at least some funding from the Mexican government. But we still don't know enough about the results to verify that they're being successful at a time and in the larger picture what other programs the mexican government in addition and in, in, in cooperation with the united states how they can continue to build on these on these two points so i'll pass the other questions to, to the other panelists.
0: great um angela well
2: i would say that um as i can comment on the COVID cross-border cooperation i did a story a few weeks ago on uh, Contact tracing uh, across borders. Uh, we have very close knit border communities, and we have uh, in, in El Paso and Juarez authorities work together to contact trace. Uh, the border is closed to all that essential uh, uh, travel, and for us though, that there are a lot of essential people going back and forth. People have relatives on both sides, whether they're you know elderly parents in Mexico or you know t- children. People work and do essential jobs on both sides of the border, and so we still have significant people going back and forth. And so contact training is happening um, it's, uh, when there's someone, there have been multiple cases in El Paso, uh, people, people also have also been in contact with friends and family in Juarez, and people have ended up hospitalized here. They've had to reach out to those other relatives and, and co-workers because, you know, people living and working in, in very close quarters. So that's happening. But the challenge is that, you know, these, these governments that like to tap their, their close cooperation at the local level now have to deal with multiple, uh, you know, states. Uh, and we're in a region where three states, Texas, New Mexico, and Chihuahua. And, of course, the federal governments and their differing approaches to, uh, first of all, shutting down um, the shelter in place. Mexico was a lot slower than the U.S. and then reopening. Texas has virtually opened everything now. And so you've got people going back and forth. So that that is a challenge and and a hazard. And uh, so trying to figure out how to to handle that when you have people going back and forth with these very close connections.
0: Thank you, Angela. Heronimo, um, and we also have a question. Let me throw in also, um, if Heronimo and Roberto I want to answer it from Gustavo Muar, who is a great expert in Mexico on migration, as well as a board member of BI. Gustavo, great to have you here. Is what will COVID-19 change in U.S. immigration policy? Will it change things on on temporary workers, for example, or on legal border crossings, on legal transit across the U.S.-Mexico border, or anything else? So, Heronimo. Uh,
3: Berg, th- there's a lot of topics, so I'll try to uh, just address some of them. On on the development side, I would just think that first, again, we both the U.S. Mexico need to recognize, I think, what we're really capable of helping uh, the Central American countries. I I think that uh, that's key. That whatever we, we are realistic about. The question was, how is it being implemented? The short answer is. I'm not sure, but I think that there is uh, there's sort of some happy accounting going on and that there is actually not much more implementation going on. And I am being a bit critical right now. And I I, I want to say, I know this is not easy to implement because I've been a part of previous effort and I can be criticized for those. But I just I, I think it's very important to be realistic. I don't think that neither the United States or Mexico can actually help more the Central American countries than, than they are able to help themselves. And I, this might sound a bit um, unsensitive, it, it's not, it's just, I think that that is a reality and I think it calls upon everybody not to, you know, to, to be very careful about not selling hopes that are just simply not there. I think that the U.S. has, the now development finance corporation as the main tool, and it's very important to understand what that can accomplish and what it, what it, can, it cannot accomplish. And it's a very useful tool in my view, but it, it it's not, it's not a panacea and it, it won't fit every kind of problem. And I think that Mexico needs, you know, so far, as Ariel was mentioning, we've used, uh you know, the sort of, we use what was what used to be the old. Uh, Fondo Yucatan which was 100 million dollars center on infrastructure and now it's going to be three programs. and I'm I I don't have any element to judge whether that is working or not. Personally I don't like that idea because I think that you're using um, a fund that was essentially for infrastructure um, to serve uh, current expenditure and I I don't think that's sustainable and I, I don't think that's a good idea and again we, we don't have any results yet, so I may be wrong, um, but that, that is relatively limited. And after COVID-19, there's very, I think that there is very traction actually going on be- with the Central American governments between the US and Mexico and all of them as a group. I think that's just understandable. We're living in a very difficult situation, but I do hope that things pick up after that. On Gustavo's point, and, and also not to take much out of the time, I don't know the answer. Roberta can probably say much more what's going to happen in terms of immigration policy, Because, but I do think that there's an opportunity for Mexico. And I, I, and depends how Mexico wants to play it. But I do think that given the fact that the numbers in general were from Mexican migration were coming down, having coming down you know, the, the trend line, at least in the year 2000 to a very much more manageable number politically and operationally, the question we Mexico must ask is, in my view, what are we willing to, you know, do with the United States to get a better treatment in immigration? Uh, do we, you know, do we want some special treatment? And that brings the discussion, the whole discussion in which you, Gustavo, were involved with the whole enchilada and the like. And I think we have to stay away from that discussion, but just a, a much more pragmatic approach, saying. If the, if the Mexican numbers are down, and that, re, and that continues to be the case, and it might be a big if, and if we are working on so many other things, can we, you know, sort of look to get a, you know, we, we don't have a, a cap on the H2As, but can we make those better? Can we work on the list of the TMBs as to improve them? Do we want, you know, and from a Mexican perspective, in my view, there's an opportunity to do that right now. Um, and that's what i would where I would focus uh, efforts. Again, it's an opportunity. It's going to be very complex, um, because it's somehow linked to the fact of the, you know the same phenomenon is happening on the supply chains. Um, you know, can Mexico take advantage of the fact that we're the u s. Uh, you know neighbor of the u s? Uh, uh, and I, I don't want to be, you know, exploit the current situation, but it might we might find that there are some opportunities for Mexico because of our geographical position and a specific trading position. And the question is, do we want to use those or not, or try to go through that avenue? Thank you.
0: Thank you, Hernanimo. And we'll now turn to Roberta. And Roberta, I'm going to throw one more question at you. And in addition sure. to the entire future of US immigration policy, <laughs> uh, but the uh, a recent Ipsos poll from Francisco de la Lama, a recent Ipsos poll shows that immigration is no longer considered as one of the most important problems facing America. Only 6% think so. Do you think that immigration will become a topic in this election cycle as it was in 2016?
4: Okay, thank you, Andrew. I'll try and be quick. Thanks for aggregating uh, questions. I, I'm only going to answer a couple, obviously. Um, first of all, I think it, it's just somebody asked about whether we know of any U.S.-Mexico anti-COVID-19 um, cooperative efforts. I, I don't know of any. At the border, there may be an awareness of uh, of some at the local and and uh, state level, I don't know of national level other than this donation of ventilators, which I guess came to pass. Um, but otherwise, I don't know of any other cooperative efforts, um, which which I do think is a marked distinction between what we saw during H1N1 and and other cooperative North American efforts. Um, you know, second of all, um, I'm. Gustavo's point about COVID-19 and a change in U.S. immigration policy, I have to say I'm a little bit divided. I'm a little uh, schizophrenic on this in that, on the one hand, um, I think the poll numbers that were just cited um, about immigration not being the most important issue are absolutely accurate. And I think there had been a natural progression towards something I saw as being very likely to favor immigration reform in the United States over the last couple of years. But if you get to the election and you've got, you've still got potentially close to 20 percent unemployment in the United States, it's very easy political fodder um, for President Trump or others to say we certainly can't do that now while we have all these unemployed in the United States, even if they're not necessarily going for the same job. So I think it's going to be um, difficult to see whether Um, the the whole COVID crisis sort of exacerbates that or makes it clear that as um, people go back to work, we need this sector of jobs filled uh, by immigrants. Um, So it's really unclear. Um, I do want to say something about the Central America situation. One of the things that I think most impedes uh, success in development programs in Central America by the u s or anyone else is the is the inability the unwillingness of those countries to really work cooperatively with each other to work collectively to be seen economically as a region instead of one four or five or whatever a million person country and and I think that no matter who implements policy uh, po- uh, aid programs in those countries, whether it's the United States or Mexico, unless the commitment to work cooperatively is is implemented and respected, committed to by the countries um, on a regular basis, then it's not worth throwing the money there. But I also will say that the money that originally had begun under the Obama administration, number one, had not nearly enough time to see if it could make much difference. We do know that some of it made differences in some areas of, of countries. Um, and second of all, the suspension, this starting and stopping by the Trump administration is disastrous. Um, so it's really impossible to know how much that cooperation might have made more of a difference, but it has to start with a commitment uh, to transparency and anti-corruption and collective action among, especially the Northern Triangle countries.
0: Great. Thank you, Roberta. Um, we are really at the end of our hour. I know we could go on and there's been some additional questions. I'm going to answer just one because it, it came in on any specific protections for unaccompanied children who are being expelled to Mexico from Marsha Griffin. Um, in theory, um, unaccompanied children are not being expelled to Mexico. The, the understanding is they are not. In reality, what we do know is that, that children who claim to be with groups sometimes are sent back and are technically unaccompanied minors. Um, they are not with immediate family members. Um, and there does not seem to be any specific provision for that, right? I mean, it's it's a much lower standard than what existed in in deciding who is an unaccompanied minor at another point, and and that is a problem that really needs to be addressed. That's a major issue at this moment. Um, that is a vulnerability for unaccompanied minors. Um, I would go back to the the group, but we are out of time. This was a fabulous discussion, Ariel. Congratulations on the report. Thank you for putting that out there. Thank you to our wonderful panelists, to Roberta, to Ranimo, to Angela. Um, yeah, really a great discussion and I wish we could have another hour with you guys, but I know you all have busy schedules and other things to do. And thank you to the 350 people that joined us uh, for this conversation today. Take care.
4: Thank you very much.